This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Welcome. I'm Dr. Linda Judice, and I am the director of the Reproductive Endocrinology and Infertility Center at Stanford University Medical Center. This evening, we have a special program on preserving fertility in cancer patients. Two of our faculty members, Dr. Barry Bayer and Dr. Lynn Westfall, will be presenting the state of the art of cryopreservation in the laboratory and also the clinical application for pre preservation of fertility in cancer patients. Dr. Bayer is, the, is an embryologist and is the director of our in vitro fertilization uh, laboratory. And Dr. Westfall is a reproductive endocrinologist and is part of our reproductive endocrine center and director of our donor oocyte program. So it's a pleasure today to welcome all of you. I would like to thank the sponsorship of the Health Library and also Women's Health at Stanford for this program. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Judice. I'd like to now, before we begin, show you a brief video of a uh, ABC News story about our fertility preservation in cancer patients at Stanford. The studies reveal that young women undergoing chemotherapy or radiation have a 40 to 80% chance of subsequent infertility. So in today's Healthy Woman, we meet one of Dr. Nancy Snyderman's patients who refused to take that risk. It was like a punch in the stomach. It was every emotion all at once. You're upset, you're angry, you're sad, you're everything that you can imagine. Nobody expects to get cancer. At 24, Lindsay Nord didn't expect to get it twice. The first cancer on her tongue was treated with radiation. The second time, Lindsay needed surgery, more radiation, and this time, chemotherapy. To me, chemotherapy is scary. It's poison. Poison your body so that you can live. But still, there was more tough news to come. Lindsay learned that chemotherapy could render her infertile. And as one of her doctors, I was stunned when she came to me, telling me she had decided to forgo the life-saving chemotherapy in order to preserve her chance to have children. Lindsay, do you remember after your surgery, when I told you you needed radiation and chemotherapy, you were adamant about not wanting that chemotherapy? Yes. Do you remember what you said to me? No. <laughs> you said you wanted me alive in five years to think about having a family, not being dead because I didn't undergo treatment. And that is the surgeon in me. Mm -hmm. I mean, I knew I had a job to do to take out the bad stuff and put you back together. But when you asked me about fertility, I didn't have any answers for you. I remember that. Right. You're used to being able to turn to experts for guidance. And here I was 
on like a solo expedition trying to figure out something that would dramatically change the rest of my life. With only two weeks to go before the scheduled chemotherapy, Lindsay found a ray of hope. Pioneering fertility work being done right here in her own backyard. After a few calls to Stanford Medical Center, I was finally put in touch with Dr. Westfall, who runs one of the few egg donation programs for cancer patients in the country. She seemed incredibly grateful to be here. She told me she had called all over and it had become a mission for her to try and find someone who could, you know, help her possibly preserve her fertility in the future. Dr. Lynn Westfall is a reproductive endocrinologist whose experimental work would allow Lindsay to freeze her unfertilized eggs. When you told the chemotherapy experts, hey, I want to take some fertility drugs, harvest some eggs, bank them, and then you can give me all the poison you need to give me. <laughs> did they say, way to go, Lindsay? Or did they look at you and go, oh. No, they said, congratulations, where'd you find that program? We didn't even know about this. Did that shock you as a patient? shocked me and then I felt like I had this secret that all of a sudden I knew about this and imagine how many other patients had been in their office that day that month that week that weren't told the information it took 12 days of daily shots in the abdomen with drugs that would stimulate her ovaries to make eggs on the 12th day Dr. Westfall surgically harvested 29 healthy eggs and put them in the deep freeze and I felt proud almost like the pride that a new mother would that like I was successful and now I had this chance. There is a 50-50 chance that Lindsay may be able to conceive naturally without the frozen eggs, but she realizes how very close she came to never knowing she had the option. So many women don't even know to ask that question until later when it's too late. And in a way, I'm lucky. I have hope. Dr. Nancy Snyderman is joining us from San Francisco, and Lindsay Nora is with us here in our Times Square studios. Nancy, I'm sort of interested that you didn't know about this, and I wonder if many oncologists don't know about it. I think I'm probably standard, Charlie. I think like a surgeon, and with Lindsay with a tough tumor, I was thinking in the short term, what do I do to throw all my tricks at her to cure her? And I must say, her fertility was not in my brain at the time. I felt very, very much a need to protect her and get her through the short-term stuff, which was tough enough. Lindsay, you've actually formed an organization along with Lance Armstrong and his wife uh, to get people to do this, is that right? I formed an organization called Fertile Hope to help cancer patients faced with infertility, and Lance Armstrong's wife, Kristen Armstrong, mm -hmm. is on the board of directors. Ah, I see. Now, you plan to have a family. I hope to. Yeah, you want to do that yes. someday. But realistically, we mentioned there the chances. I mean, it's not for certain. It's not guaranteed, but it promised me something that chemotherapy couldn't, a chance at reproduction. And through Fertile Hope and everything I do, um, I want to give everyone that chance. And do the insurance companies pay for this, or do you do it on your own? Insur most insurance companies do not cover fertility preservation treatments, but Fertile Hope help hopes to be able to lobby insurance companies to pay for the treatments when infertility is a side effect of a life-saving treatment. And you're feeling okay? Yeah, feeling okay, great. Okay, things are good. All right. Nancy Snyderman, thanks very much. Good to have one of your patients here. She's a pretty us. amazing character, Charlie. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Nancy and Lindsay. <laughs> Thank you. Congratulations Thank you. to you. Thanks. As we heard from the introduction, the title of my portion of this talk this evening is going to be Cryopreservation and Vitrification, the Basic Principles. And being someone who works in the laboratory part of our program, 
I feel that it's important that we all understand what the limitations and approaches there are to cryopreservation of reproductive tissue. Before we begin, however, I think it's important to recognize some of the major breakthroughs that the area of assisted reproductive technologies um, have experienced over the past two or three decades. You all may be aware that in 1978, the first in vitro fertilization baby was born in the United Kingdom. It took about three to four years before that technology uh, traveled the oceans and uh, was successful in the United States. And as far as assisted reproductive technology and cryopreservation are concerned, one of the major events that really has aided us in making egg freezing or oocyte cryopreservation successful was the development of intracytoplasmic sperm injection, which occurred, or commonly known as ICSI, ICSI, in the mid-1990s. As you can see from the slide, the techniques we believe that are going to be promising in the new millennium of the 2000 and beyond are ovarian tissue cryopreservation or oocyte cryopreservation or ova cryopreservation. It's semi-intuitive to, to think about uh, cryopreservation in, in two, two genders, if you will, two, two ways of thinking. With the male anatomy uh, allowing us to access the male germ cells very easily with the external gonads that males have, testicular tissue and sperm have been cryopreserved for many decades. Men may also have their gametes or their genetic material stored in the form of embryos at various stages. To contrast that in the female, with internal gonads, the access to the ovaries and the reproductive tissue of the female has been more difficult. And with the advent of in vitro fertilization, access to human oocytes, uh, surgeries that have uh, allowed us to access the ovaries, uh, we have now have options to freeze female reproductive tissue as we do with males solely as a gamete or united with sperm in the form of embryos at various stages. The big debate we have before us today from the principles of cryopreservation are the decisions we have to make whether we are going to do a technique called vitrification or cryopreservation. The other consideration we have to take in mind would be whether we are going to freeze the oocyte as a single cell or a strip of the ovary, ovarian tissue. We have to keep in mind, however, out of all of these techniques, irrespective of the tissue we freeze, the enemy really is ice crystal formation, as you can see in the slide. It's important to understand a little bit about the development of the oocyte before we can talk about preserving them. The top panel on the left shows a mature human oocyte as it would be obtained from the ovary. However, this is not how all oocytes in the ovary are residing. The oocytes go through a series of meiotic events, maturation events, that take several weeks or even months. So when we freeze tissue, we may be freezing cells at various stages of development. The panel on the top right shows a germinal vesicle stage oocyte. And the structure you see in the middle, the button-like structure, is the nucleus of that oocyte. This would be a very uh, appropriate cell to freeze, given that the genetic material is securely uh, sequestered in this germinal vesicle. One of the problems we have, however, is that we are unable to successfully mature oocytes in vitro. The panel on the bottom left shows a metaphase one oocyte, which is the next stage developmentally that we can observe in, in meiosis in oocytes. This, this oocyte has gone through uh, meiosis to the point of metaphase one, and it is still not at a stage that we are able to successfully freeze or mature in vitro. 
The optimum oocyte, the mature metaphase II oocyte, is the candidate cell that we would like to freeze in oocyte cryopreservation. The slide showing follicular genesis really underscores the complexity of the maturation process that eggs and follicles have to undergo in vivo. There are various cytokines, growth factors, hormones, transcription factors that have to be present in specific amounts in order for this procedure to go forward in nature. And for this reason, we have difficulty maturing these oocytes in vitro. As I mentioned in my second slide, one of the major advances in our assisted reproductive technologies have been the development of intracytoplasmic sperm injection. Intracytoplasmic sperm injection is a process where a single sperm is injected into an oocyte. This technique was originally developed for men who had severely poor sperm parameters. Other indications are patients who have normal sperm parameters but just have had failed fertilization in the laboratory. There are other conditions for pre-implantation genetic diagnosis that ICSI would be warranted. But as you can see from my bottom bullet point, uh, the latest uh, indication for ICSI is oocytes that have been cryopreserved. And there's a very important uh, reason behind this. Sperm, during their process of penetrating an oocyte, interact with many uh, envelopes around the oocyte. And these are called extracellular matrix cells or cumulus auferous cells. And you can see in panel A of my slide, the cells of around the egg um, encompassing the sperm. These cells have a very important role in preparing the sperm for fertilization. In addition, the sperm needs to interact with the zona pellucida, uh, the blue line in the middle panel, that has a very uh, specific lock and key mechanism to interact with the sperm. It is thought that during the cryopreservation process, the zona pellucida, or the egg shell, the blue line in my panel B, is altered in such a way that prevents or inhibits sperm penetration. Because of this, some investigators thought it may be advantageous to freeze oocytes with some cells around them. And as you can see in the slide, this is a human oocyte with the corona cells still encasing the oocyte. One of the limitations of freezing cells this way is that we cannot identify the maturity status of the oocyte with all these cells around them. We cannot see the germinal vesicle. We cannot see the polar bodies very well. Therefore, most oocyte cryopreservation has been accomplished on eggs such as the ones uh, before you where the corona cells and extracellular matrix cells have been removed. Again, uh, underscoring the need for some uh, mechanical fertilization process since we've altered the eggshell in a way that inhibits sperm penetration and removed the extracellular matrix cells that prepare the sperm for fertilization. But the big debate in the laboratory is whether we should freeze ovarian tissue or oocytes and each have their advantages. If we speak to the oocyte initially, the concern or the decision that we need to consider are do we freeze an immature oocyte or a GV oocyte that one that has its genetic material protected in a germinal vesicle that we can't mature in vitro, or do we mature or do we freeze a metaphase II oocyte, a mature oocyte, that may be more vulnerable to cryo damage, but does not require in vitro maturation. The balance act that we're trying to deal with is the need versus the need of in vitro maturation versus the possible spindle damage that may occur on a mature oocyte. When we consider ovarian tissue cryopreservation, 
the things that have to be uh, taken into consideration are the ability of our cryoprotectants or antifreezes to penetrate the multiple layers of cells that encase the oocyte in a strip of ovarian tissue. We also recognize that this is a piece of an organ and that the oocyte development is in a continuum in the ovary, that we will be uh, preserving oocytes at various stages of maturation. We also are concerned on ovarian tissue cryopreservation that on a long-term basis, the number of fertile cycles, if you will, that this tissue may provide may be limited. And that is probably due to the lack of follicular regulation that exists in the attacked organ that does not exist in the piece of ovarian uh, tissue. And lastly, and not least, the most important feature that we uh, have to take into consideration when we are treating patients is to do no harm. And for many patients who have cancer, who we may be freezing tissue on, our primary concern would be the potential reseeding of disease into a woman who has uh, recovered, survived from her cancer treatment. So that is one of the major limiting factors of ovarian tissue cryopreservation. But the basic principles that apply to all the preservation tissues uh, that we've discussed involve the movement of water. The basic principle of cryopreservation is dehydrating the cells to the extent that they will not form intracellular ice crystals. Intracellular ice crystals are the enemy. The second principle that we need to take into consideration is matching the freezing program, meaning how, this, how the tissue or the cells are cooled to preservation temperatures with the temperatures and the protocols that we're going to use to defrost, if you will, for these tissues for later clinical use. A third consideration that we have to take into account is the vessel that these tissues are going to be maintained in. There are various choices that we have in the laboratory and they all have their pros and cons like most things in life and it is certainly a consideration that we have to take into account. As I mentioned to you, uh, ice crystal formation is, is the enemy and I have a short video clip to show you what ice crystal formation extracellularly uh, looks like on an egg. This is an egg and is placed on a cryostage and you will see the ice crystals growing across the exterior of the oocyte like blades. Uh, clearly if this were to penetrate the oocyte or any cell you could imagine uh, the grave consequences that would exist. But that's not the whole story. Notice the cell in the middle and its color change that occurs as the ice crystals form inside the cell. That process renders the cell non-viable and it is something that we are obliged to avoid uh, if we want viable cells post-thawing. And the last video I'm going to show you is the consequences of intracellular ice crystals on an embryo. This is a two-cell embryo that um, gets frozen and if you watch the color of the embryo in a few seconds, it turns black. And in biology, a black cell is a dead cell. There are many types of antifreezes that we have to take into account when considering oocyte freezing. There are typically two types of cryoprotectants that are used. And another word for cryoprotectants would be antifreeze. There are permeating cryoprotectants or intracellular cryoprotectants. Those are the, the antifreeze molecules that actually are able to penetrate inside the cell. And the most common cryoprotectants used today are glycerol, dimethyl sulfoxide, propane diol, and ethylene glycol. 
and these are used alone or uh, in synchrony to uh, achieve successful cryopreservation for the intracellular cryoprotectants. All cryopreservation systems involve intracellular, both intracellular and extracellular cryoprotectants. And the most common extracellular non-permeating cryoprotectant is sucrose. As I mentioned to you before, the other consideration that we have to make, other than whether we freeze tissues or oocytes, is whether we vitrify or cryopreserve. And let me uh, explain just a little bit about what the differences are between these two techniques. Vitrification is a very rapid technique that eliminates ice, ice crystal formation, however uses very, very high concentrations of cryoprotectant that may be potentially toxic. Cryopreservation, on the other hand, is a slow technique that requires complete dehydration to avoid intracellular ice crystal formation. And one might ask, why do slow freezing? I'll get to that in a moment, but I wanted to show you a cartoon depicting the differences between the slow freezing method and the vitrification method. If you will notice the first circle that says attention to size, the initial step of a slow, slow freezing program would involve placing the cell, the oocyte, into a cryoprotective solution that would initially shrink it and through a slow dehydration process uh, remove the water from the oocyte and result in extracellular ice crystal formation avoiding the intracellular ice. Vitrification on the other hand immediately shrinks the cell and causes solidification of this solution by increasing the viscosity without a phase change uh, causing intracellular ice crystal formation. And I'll explain that a little more clearly. If you look at the left panel of this slide, it depicts vitrification, which you can see in a single step in less than five minutes can achieve vitrification or solidification through a single step. Compared to slow cooling, which takes about 90 to 120 minutes, uh, takes several hours, two hours approximately, to slowly dehydrate the embryo to avoid intracellular ice crystal formation prior to plunging into liquid nitrogen, which is the storage uh, liquid that we maintain all our preserved materials in. As I mentioned before, vitrification is the process of solidification through increased viscosity. One of the problems we find in the laboratory with this technique is that it is very subjective. The timing of moving the cells through their different solutions prior to the plunging liquid nitrogen bases, is based upon subjective criteria like the color of the cell, not the time of incubation, which is problematic for reproducibility. The other concern that we have with vitrification is that we use very high concentrations of these cryoprotectants to avoid the phase change from liquid to solid to allow the increasing viscosity which permits the solidification of the solution. In addition, due to the complexity of the cryoprotectants and the solutions used and the timing that is required, although it's short, it, is requ it requires constant surveillance of these cells waiting for the color change it is not therefore conducive to high volume cryopreservation or preservation. It requires very, very small volumes of liquid to achieve the high rates of freezing, or high rates of cooling necessary for the increased viscosity. And it requires dedicated time on the microscope to watch for these color changes that I mentioned that the cells need to undergo prior to moving to uh, a second step. 
An additional limiting factor to vitrification is in order to achieve these high rates of cooling that are necessary for the solidification process, the cells, the oocytes in this case, are required to be in direct exposure to the liquid nitrogen, the freezing medium. And this poses, poses a risk for cross-contamination of particles, viruses, prions, bacteria, etc., that may exist around the oocyte or in the medium that the liquid nitrogen can act as a vehicle for. So the bottom line with vitrification is you have to have a container that has a minimum volume in order to achieve these high cryopreservation, these high um, cooling rates. We are concerned about the toxicity of the cryoprotectants. And the bottom line is there are parallel fields where cryopreservation is being done at a high rate every day, and that is in the domestic animal field. And to this date, vitrification has not been adopted as a standard form of preservation, which should tell us something. So I say we must ask why vitrification has not taken off as the gold standard in domestic animal preservation. So to contrast that with cryopreservation, slow cooling, it does involve a phase change from liquid to solid. It is extremely important because of this phase change that we have complete dehydration of the cell meaning all the water needs to be taken out of the cell, otherwise that water, when going through a phase change, will form intracellular ice crystal formation, which is lethal to cells. It is an advantage to do slow cooling or cryopreservation because uh, it's an established protocol. It is essentially the gold standard because it's what we use in embryo cryopreservation with some subtle modifications. We use lower, cry lower concentrations of cryoprotectant, thereby in theory making it a safer technique. So, in summary, there are various fertility preservation options that we can offer patients and that we are, can offer through the laboratory. Uh, oocyte cryopreservation is in its infancy, in my opinion, yet it offers tremendous hope for those patients who otherwise would be rendered sterile. Embryo cryopreservation is a technique that has been around for two decades now. It is tried and true, but it is is not an option for those women who are single and don't have a sperm source. Lastly, but not least, ovarian tissue cryopreservation is a technique that is offering some new promise since we have the birth now of the first baby from ovarian tissue cryopreservation that occurred on the East Coast, uh, excuse me, in, in Europe recently. And I'm going to hand the podium over now to Dr. Lynn Westfall, who's going to talk to you about the clinical applications of fertility preservation for cancer patients. Dr. Baer, thank you for that wonderful um, talk about the basic science. And now I'm going to talk about clinical applications. The risk of cancer, in 2002, there were almost 650,000 women who were diagnosed with invasive cancer, and about 8% were under the age of 40. With more aggressive treatment for cancer, there are more and more um, people who are surviving, and this is becoming an issue that's affecting more people. The effect of cancer treatment on women um, is that it obviously can put women into early menopause. Women are born with a finite number of eggs, and at puberty, about 300,000 follicles are present. 
chemotherapy and radiotherapy can increase the damage to these follicles and premature menopause is common. When a patient comes in to talk to me about her risk of going into menopause, um, there are two things that we look at primarily to tell her what, her, what we think her chance of that is. Um, her age at the time of receiving chemotherapy and the type of chemotherapy regimen that she's receiving. This is a study that showed very clearly how, how important it is or how age is protective. You can see that women um, who were in their 20s were able to receive four times as much chemotherapy as opposed to women who were in their 40s. And the type of chemotherapy is very important. Cyclophosphamide is the one that a lot of women um, are treated with. And cyclophosphamide is one of the more damaging ones to the ovary. This was a study looking at 183 women who were premenopausal before being treated for breast cancer. And you can see that the curves on the left side are women who were treated with chemotherapy. And clearly, um, that those women went into menopause at an earlier age than the women on the right who received no chemotherapy or just tamoxifen. And the average age um, of the women who went into menopause was three years older than the women who, who didn't. So this also shows that, um, that women who are in their 40s are more likely to go into menopause early when they receive chemotherapy. There are a number of different options that may be considered depending on the situation and various life factors. Um, and Dr. Baer has touched on most of these already, but I'll discuss some of the clinical applications. So we can freeze eggs, embryos, ovarian tissue. We can try using some medication to perhaps, perhaps protect the ovaries. And one thing to consider, sometimes there are different types of chemotherapy that can be used. And if fertility is a big concern, maybe choose a type of chemotherapy that has less ovarian toxicity, may have some other types of toxicity, um, but may be um, safer for the ovaries. So I've talked about chemotherapy and effects on ovarian function, but there are other things that can affect um, reproduction in the future also. Um, surgery can put women into menopause. And this is a patient of mine, the woman sitting on the sofa. Um, she was diagnosed with endometrial cancer when she was 37 years old. And she was going to have her uterus and her ovaries removed. But before she had that treatment, we froze 14 embryos. And two years after her treatment, she felt like she was ready to have a child. So she used her niece, who was her gestational carrier, and um, she actually delivered a healthy boy um, almost two years ago now. So freezing embryos has been around since 1983. Obviously, you do need some source of sperm, and it requires ovarian stimulation. But this is something to consider in um, someone like my previous patient who who would consider a gestational carrier. So you can think about these options for people who are going to have surgery. There are different ways of stimulating the ovary. Typically, we don't have a lot of time. Patients come in, and their oncologists want to start their chemotherapy in the next couple of weeks. Um, sometimes they wanted to start it the day before they came in. 
but many times they're willing to delay chemotherapy for a couple of weeks so that patients can do some of these treatments. So typically what we do is start gonadotropins. So we give follicle-stimulating hormone, the hormone that normally causes the follicles to grow in the ovary, and we stimulate the ovaries that way. And then we add a medication called a GnRH antagonist when the follicles are getting to a size where they could start to ovulate. We want to keep the women from ovulating early. And then when the follicles are at the right size, which is around 18 millimeters, we'll give a medication to cause the final maturation. And then we, we time doing the egg retrieval 35 to 36 hours after that final injection. This is what the ovaries look like um, around the time of the egg retrieval. You can see these are multiple follicles and they should contain eggs at the time of retrieval. The retrieval is done with a vaginal ultrasound and on this um, picture here, the ultrasound probe is here and then the needle just goes through the top of the vagina right into the ovary. So you can see it just going, it's, a, um, it's usually a very direct process. And it takes about 10 to 15 minutes to do. We have the eggs, which we give to the embryologist. And then at the time that they're thawed, um, they're, they're fertilized. And then this is what, the, um, what it would look like the following day. This is also the stage where we freeze the embryos if someone does do embryo cryopreservation. And then when they're thawed, this is what we hope they look like at the time that we transfer them. And the little tank where we um, can store them indefinitely. The eggs and, and the um, embryos can be stored for, for many years. Um, I've heard of births from embryos that have been stored for more than a decade. The first live birth from cryopreservation of oocytes was in 1986. And as Dr. Baer discussed, there was limited success initially with some of these techniques, the ICSI and better cryopreservation um, methods. Um, I think those results are improving. Again, it does require ovarian stimulation um, in order to, to have the eggs to freeze. Dr. Porcu in Italy is one of the pioneers in this field, and she reported on her, her results from cryopreserved eggs, comparing them to cryopreserved embryos, and she reports comparable results um, per transfer in the two groups of patients that she looked at. Her follow-up of the children that were born from the cryopreserved oocytes showed no abnormalities. Um, now, these are small numbers of children, that have been born, but so far it doesn't appear that there are any increased birth defects. One other person who has published um, results of his series is Dr. Winslow, and he looked at a young um, patient population. These were eggs from women who were, who were donating to um, other women, and he had comparable pregnancy rates in the two groups. Um, very similar implantation rates um, you can see in both, both groups. Cryopreservation of ovarian tissue is um, another technique that people are looking into. It does require some sort of surgical 
technique, either a laparoscopy or a laparotomy, which is where um, a large incision is made in the abdomen. And there's been one possible human pregnancy to date. There are concerns about transplanting or reseeding malignant cells, and so the debate is, um, should you put it back into someone, the autografting, or should you mature them in the laboratory, which is obviously much safer, but we don't have the ability to do that well um, currently. There were two initial um, trials of putting the tissue back into women. There was a 29-year-old who, who did ovulate in response to ovarian stimulation, although she did require very large number or very large amounts of medication to stimulate her ovary. And after one ovulation, she went on hormone replacement therapy. The second patient, the 32-year-old, had had lymphoma, and she received chemotherapy before she had her ovarian tissue removed. And, um, and she did have some temporary estrogen production, but never did ovulate. So Dr. Akte in New York looked at other things or other ways uh, or other places to put the tissue. And he initially started looking at the forearm because it was an easy place for access. Um, it didn't require general anesthesia or abdominal surgery to put it back into the patient. And he had two patients that did have ovarian function restored. And he had one patient who they were able to aspirate eggs from the forearm. Now this is a picture of um, that woman that had the percutaneous egg retrieval. And you can see on her forearm, um, this is the ovary that's been stimulated. And so it's fairly easy to monitor. This is a picture of doing an ultrasound on her forearm. And this is a picture of um, eggs that are forming in that piece of ovarian tissue. Another place that was tried to put um, ovarian tissue was in the abdomen. And this was done because they were concerned about lymphedema in this woman with breast cancer. So the, the oncologist did not want it put in the forearm. So she had it placed just under the skin in her abdomen. And she had ovarian function that returned three months after the tissue was transplanted. Um, she's undergone eight retrievals with 20 eggs and one that fertilized normally. And this is a picture of that one embryo that was formed. The patient did not conceive. At this point, I, I don't think that they're, they're continuing with the aspirations. Um, then this is the most recent exciting um, research that has, has come out recently. There was a 32-year-old woman who had Hodgkin's lymphoma, and her tissue was frozen for six years. They thawed the ovarian tissue and placed it near the ovarian vessels. And then 11 months later, um, the woman conceived, and it appears that it's from the tissue that was placed near the ovarian, um, near her ovarian vessels. Um, this is a picture taken at the time of laparoscopy of this woman, and this is where that, the ovarian tissue transplants were placed, and this looks like um, development of a follicle from that transplanted ovarian tissue. And this is the happy mom with her baby pictures that a lot of you may have seen um, the last week of September. So all those techniques are great, but they are invasive. The 
probably the best thing for patients would be to find some method just to protect their ovaries without having to do any, any other treatment. So if you could give someone a medication that protected their ovaries, that would obviously be the easiest and safest thing. Dr. Blumenfeld in Israel has looked at a number of women receiving chemotherapy, and what he has done is given GnRH agonists before they receive their chemotherapy. And in his study, 61 of 62 women who were treated with this medication resumed their menses, and only 40% of control patients resumed their menses. This was not a randomized study, and not every study has shown quite this benefit, but I think it's very encouraging data. Um, there was a group that looked at women with breast cancer who were treated with GnRH agonists for a year, and in their group, 86% of their patients um, resumed menses, and all of the women who were under 40 resumed menses, and they showed good disease-free survival. Breast cancer is the most common cancer in reproductive age women, and about 15% of the estimated 200,000 cases per year will occur in women under 45. So it is something that um, I think a significant number of women um, will have concerns about fertility preservation. Now there's the question on what is, um, is there a safe way to stimulate these patients? And you can retrieve eggs just in a natural cycle, just follow a woman, and when it looks like she's about to ovulate, take that egg out. There isn't always an egg in that situation, and so in natural cycles, on average, um, they found they got 0.6 eggs on average. Um, they tried using tamoxifen to stimulate the ovaries. Tamoxifen, which is used for breast cancer treatment, is closely related to a medication called clomiphene citrate that we commonly use in the United States to induce ovulation. And you can use these medications um, for short periods of time to get, hopefully, multiple follicles to, to develop. Um, so they did have more embryos um, when they used the tamoxifen, although, again, it's only 1.6 embryos. So we've been trying different protocols to increase the number of embryos to improve the chances that, um, that a woman may conceive in the future. And currently what we are doing is using tamoxifen along with a little bit of follicle-stimulating hormone and have seen um, more embryos after that process. We're currently collaborating with UCSF on a breast cancer study. We're looking at using a GnRH agonist. In this situation, it's tryptorelin. And this is in women who are 35 to 44 years old. We're evaluating their ovarian function after the treatment and also evaluating quality of life issues. Um, we have found that a lot of women um, just don't have information on things that they could potentially do to preserve their fertility. This is a little bit of the data that we have been able to get so far from the quality of life component of that study. And we have found that when women were asked about what information about risks of early menopause and infertility, um, most women found that they did not get enough information. So you can see in the black, these are women who thought that they got too little information. And it was almost 
almost all the women under 40 thought they didn't get, too, didn't get enough information, and about half of the women um, between 40 and 45. The oncologists are frequently concerned that patients maybe wouldn't do chemotherapy if they were counseled about risk of infertility or premature um, menopause. And so we asked the patients if it would have made a difference in going through with chemotherapy. And we found that none of the patients said that they would not have done their chemotherapy. So I think um, this is information that patients need to have, but it usually doesn't change what they ultimately end up doing. And so our conclusions from this um, preliminary data is that young women care very deeply about this. We actually found that more than 70% responded to this very long survey. It's a survey that's more than 20 pages, and 25 out of 26 women so that they would do an additional interview. And we found that even women over 40 are upset about possible side effects, and most report too little information, and there's little support for the concern that some oncologists have that we may scare women away from getting chemotherapy. Um, so we've talked a lot about chemotherapy, but radiation can also have um, a significant effect on the uterus and the ovaries, and this is showing someone who received radiation to the uterus. Typically, the lining of the uterus is very thick in a normal woman, but after radiation, the lining of the uterus doesn't build up as well. So there's a group that looked at ways to perhaps improve the function of the uterus, and they looked at six women who had had radiation in childhood, and they gave them patoxifiline and vitamin E for 12 months, and they found that the lining of the uterus became much thicker, actually the size of the uterus increased, and the blood flow improved. Now, if someone did not have a chance to do some of these treatments before they receive their chemotherapy and they do go into menopause, um, they may, uh, in certain situations, want to consider hormone replacement therapy. And there is always the option of getting an egg donor um, if they have gone into menopause. That's one thing that I think a lot of patients don't realize when they get chemotherapy. If they do go into menopause early, some people think that they can't get pregnant because they're in menopause. Um, but the uterus is usually fine unless they've had significant damage from radiation. And so if someone still has their uterus, we can give them hormones to get their uterus ready, and we can take eggs from someone younger um, and transfer them into the uterus, and they can have a totally successful pregnancy. For men, it tends to be much easier to do some of this fertility preservation before chemotherapy. The first births um, were reported in 1953 from cryopreserved sperm in men, and as Dr. Baer showed in his presentation, the ICSI technique has made, um, has allowed a lot of advances for men who have very low sperm count. So even if someone has very few sperm, sometimes men with um, cancer have very low sperm counts at the time that they're tested, but they should still be frozen because you don't need very many sperm in order to have successful pregnancies. And if someone comes in and is found to be azospermic or there's no sperm at all, there still may be the chance for them to have a pregnancy. 
Um, this group looked at 17 men who were azospermic after chemotherapy, and in 20 of them, they did testicular biopsies, and they were able to get sperm in nine of those 20 biopsies and had biochemical pregnancies in four of nine and then a live delivery in two of nine. So even though they're not large numbers, there still is a chance for some of these men who you would never have thought would be able to have a pregnancy. So it's um, worth, worth having these men see a, a urologist and have some of this testing done. And then there's always the question of the safety of pregnancy after chemotherapy. Pregnancy outcomes in cancer survivors have shown no increase in abnormalities. There are no studies in humans right after chemotherapy, but in mice, um, it does seem that early fertilization results in higher pregnancy failure. So in general, we recommend that patients try to avoid pregnancy for three to six months after chemotherapy, although usually uh, most people are still recovering and most of the time the oncologists want them to wait usually at least a year before they attempt pregnancy. So it's rare that someone would probably be trying to conceive very shortly after receiving chemotherapy. Um, and I often get questions from breast cancer patients about the safety of being pregnant after breast cancer. And of course, everyone is always concerned because any type of tumor that we think is hormonally related, um, you always worry about doing anything that that may be different to the body. But there have been studies looking at women who got pregnant after breast cancer and comparing them to women um, who didn't, and there's no difference in recurrence rates in women who conceive after being treated for breast cancer. So unless it's an unusual situation, I think a lot of women um, can be reassured that, that they could consider pregnancy after breast cancer. And I'll end there. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.